All right, welcome back, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Uh, I want to invite you to turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 6. If you noticed last week, we covered Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7. And if you were paying attention, we skipped over 19 verses. And so we want to go back and uh, just carefully not skip over anything intentionally. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to look back and pick up those passages, those verses that we missed. Uh, That's in Proverbs chapter 6 verses 1 through 19. It'll take us two weeks to pick those up. Uh, Those are four independent, uh, separate teachings. And so we'll just uh, half that and do two and two. uh, Two this week, two next week. And so today we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. If you're new to the Bible uh, and you don't have an app in front of you, like the app would make it easy just to find it, um, generally if you open your Bible to the very middle, you'll probably hit Psalms. And then if you go to the end of Psalms, there are 150 Psalms. Uh, those are all just songs. That's the, um, the playlist of Israel in worship. Uh, if you skip to the end of Psalms, Uh, and you get to Psalm 150, you're going to see the very next book is the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has 31 chapters. A lot of people make it their habit uh, in order to live a life of wisdom, to cycle through a chapter a day uh, for an entire month, and then to start again at the uh, first chapter, and to try to read through Proverbs um, 12 times in a year uh, as a way of infusing wisdom into your life. We understand from this sermon series that we've been in for the past couple of months that chapters 1 through 9 are an introduction to the individual Proverbs in 10 through 31. So we're just making our way through the introduction. Uh, it's a long introduction, nine chapters, and, uh, and so today we find ourselves in chapter 6. Uh, if you're new to church, uh, this is the portion of the worship service when we gather with the expectation that God can speak to us. That's the hope and that's the expectation. Not that you would learn something from me necessarily. I don't have anything, um, uh, any, any wisdom in my own, uh, of my own that I possess. Um, our hope is that God speaks to us through His Word. And as I was praying about this um, sort of section of the sermon, this pre-introduction, the pretext introduction, I was reminded of Billy Graham before the Los Angeles Crusades. And he was in an association with a number of other evangelists, Graham, Templeton, uh, and a couple of other guys. And each of those guys, to a person, had begun to question the Word of God. Uh, and, and so Billy Graham came to a pivotal point in his ministry when he just had to get out one evening under the moon and the stars and, and have a time of prayer on a rock outside of Los Angeles. And he, he just had to come to a place where he said, I, whether I understand it all or not, uh, I'm coming to believe that this is your word. That it is the word of God without any mixture of error. And it was from that pivotal point forward that his ministry really began to take off while the ministries of the other two faded away. And I just start that way because I'm not sure how you will thrive in your relationship with God if you've not come to that conviction that the Word of God is living and active, that it is the inspired Word of God, that it is His very words to you, that it 
it is a secure, uncompromising position that the Bible that you're reading out of in any responsible translation is the Word of God without any mixture of error and that it should have authority over your life. Earlier in the week, as I was studying for this passage, I just have to confess, I, I, wasn't, <clears throat> I just didn't understand why Solomon was making such a big deal about this first five verses. And I'll get into that in a minute. But I understood that I was imposing on the Scripture my lack of understanding. And rather than me adapting my life to the Scripture, I was adapting my opinion and imposing it on the Scripture. You understand? That's a faulty technique called um, eisegesis. When you take your own opinions and you impose it on the Scripture, exegesis is the, is the discipline of allowing your life to be molded to the Scripture rather than molding your opinions and forcing them on the Scripture. I, just, I don't know how you're going to ever thrive in your relationship with God if you haven't come to that conviction that the Word of God that you're holding is authoritative over your life. And you almost have to come to that conviction by some combination of faith and choice, right? You have to say, I believe and I will trust you, Lord, that this book has been preserved by you and transmitted to me in my language under the watchful care of the Holy Spirit through godly men and women who have prayerfully labored to translate the original languages into a, a, an understandable language that I, I can grasp. You have to come to a place where you say, I trust that these are the words of God preserved and passed down, delivered into my hands, and that this Bible is beneficial in verifying the truth that the Holy Spirit communicates. That Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would remind me of this truth in a timely way, and that truth is contained only in this book. The conviction that says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that we may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work that God calls us to accomplish. I just don't know how you'll make it. Not to say there won't be momentary times of doubt or struggle or difficulty with the Bible. That certainly comes for any of us in any of our lives. But when those opportunities come and when that doubt creeps in, it brings us to an opportunity to solidify our conviction that it is God's word to us. So one of my core convictions as a pastor and as a preacher is that you would always walk away, not necessarily knowing what I think about a passage, but knowing what a passage says. A hundred years from now, my words won't make a bit of difference at all. Uh, there's no one chronicling my words. There are no transcriptions of my words. But a but hundred years from now, in a pulpit somewhere, a faithful pastor will be reading this text. And that's what's enduring. Scripture says that heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God will endure forever. It is one of those enduring elements in the world that will endure even through the passing away of heaven and earth. So it's with that sort of reverence that we come this morning to the Word of God. And we don't do this all the time, but, but in light of that introduction, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the Word of God as we read Proverbs 6, 1 through 11. God, by the Holy Spirit to Solomon, writes to us, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor... 
have given pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth and caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. That concludes the first section. The second independent teaching that we're coming to is verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You may be seated. Four separate teachings, four separate topics covered in chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. This morning, we cover the two of them. And if I had to um, give you some sort of summary over these two, it is that you are a steward in life. Your finances are not your own. God is the giver of finances. And as long as you have the biblical understanding that what he gives you, you can't take with you, uh, no one takes their wealth with them, but you're a steward of your resources. God has given you resources for you to manage. And when you die, those resources will be redistributed to someone else. Uh, this also talks about laziness or the sluggard. And so you're also a steward of the time that God gives you. So if I had to summarize these two sections, I would say that you're a steward. You're a steward in life. God has given you time. God has given you life. God has given you resources. And the biblical reality is that we all will face God on the day of judgment. There will be a time of judgment. 21 times Jesus is recording uh, as preaching about future judgment in the Gospels. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 describes the day of judgment. And twice in that passage it says that books will be opened and every single living soul Every single human who has ever walked the planet, uh, or even a human who has not walked the planet, everyone will come before God in judgment. And it will be based on according to what they had done. Now we understand for believers that our life judgment was wrapped up in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So he took our punishment for us. That's worth worshiping about that the punishment that you deserve on judgment day was um, poured out at the cross and so you're not punished for your sins. That's a beautiful thing. In Christ, your punishment has been taken for you so that you may walk in gratitude and in freedom and in service to God. So if I had one purpose, that by the end of this sermon you would walk away doing one thing, it would be to determine or to resolve to be a good steward of your life, particularly in the area of your resources and your time. So let's get back into the text. Verses 1 through 5. My son, if you've put up security for your neighbor, if you've given pledge for a stranger, if you're snared in the words of your mouth and caught in the words of your mouth, that's four different ways of saying the same thing. 
If you're putting up security, if you've given a pledge, if you're snared in the words of your mouth, if you're caught in the words of your mouth, what's he talking about? He's talking about the financial practice of co-signing. The financial practice of co-signing describes the promise to pay someone else's debt if they can't pay their own debt. Example, you want to buy a car, but your credit is bad and the bank won't give you a loan to buy the car that you want. So you ask a friend to co-sign on the loan, meaning if you don't pay legally, your friend is obligated to pay the debt. Your friend doesn't get to have the car or drive the car or enjoy the car. Your friend is only required to pay for the car if you decide not to pay for it. Co-signing is mentioned all over Proverbs. Proverbs 11:15. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will certainly suffer harm, but the one who strikes hands in a pledge, but he who hates striking a hand in pledge is secure. Proverbs 17, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security for his neighbor. Proverbs 20, take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. Proverbs 22, 26, be not one of those who gives a pledge who puts up security for debts. This idea of putting a security down or a pledge down or agreeing to pay for something is one that Solomon is warning his son is a dangerous practice. He's saying don't do it. He's not saying never do it. He's saying be careful when you do it. And the reason why he's asking for caution is that if you're doing it for someone that you don't know well, whenever you co-sign for something, you are at the mercy of their whim to decide to pay for it or not to pay for it. I can't remember who I was talking to this week, uh, but someone paid for a, a wedding and went over and over and over out of their way to pay more and more for this particular wedding because the couple was in need, only to later find out that they spent um, more than $6,000 on a Hawaiian vacation honeymoon. And it left this particular person with a bad taste in his mouth saying, why did I pay so much for all these things that you couldn't afford when you could obviously afford a massive honeymoon vacation that any of us would kill for. But it's the idea of lending money to someone who on any sort of a whim might decide not to pay for it. And then it would obligate you to years of financial payment, essentially making you waste the resources that God has given you based on someone's whim. Now I have to confess to you as I did a little while ago. When I was studying this section, I thought that Solomon was making a really big deal out of a seemingly inconsequential situation. A mountain out of a molehill. I thought he was blowing this way out of proportion. Listen to some of the words that he uses. Verse 3, save yourself. Uh, Verse 3, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. Verse 4, don't even go to sleep. Don't give your eyes any sleep. Don't, go, don't even slumber. Verse 5, save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. I'm like, come on, Solomon, really? 
like a gazelle being hunted. There's only one end for a gazelle being hunted, right? That's a banquet table, right? If you're, if you're going to be a gazelle and a hunter is hunting you or a bird being snared by a fowler, why is Solomon saying that if you loan money to your neighbor or you uh, co-sign a pledge to pay, that this is equivalent to somebody getting killed? Why is he saying don't even go to sleep? Because this is such an urgent matter. I... Uh, in studying this, didn't take uh, the deeper understanding of Scripture seriously. I knew, um, as I began to study the Word of God and came to see what the Scripture teaches about pledges, vows, commitments, keeping your words, keeping your promises, I came to see that it is very important to God. And when you make a pledge or when you co-sign for something, you're essentially saying, I personally promise to do something. I'm making a promise. I'm making a commitment. I am committing to do something. And that is equivalently related to vows. Listen to what God has to say about vows that changed my thinking about Proverbs 6, 1 through 5. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 7, when you make a promise, a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That's Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 7. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, that's the same word used in Proverbs 6, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you won't be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed through your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth probably a dozen other verses, passages I could point to in the Old Testament. But you might say to me at this point, come on, Gibson, that's Old Testament stuff. Didn't Jesus die in order to fulfill the law so that the law would not be binding on us? Yes, but Jesus carries this particular concept and principle over into the New Testament. Listen to Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In other words, Jesus is saying to be a steward of the promises and the pledges and the words that pass through your lips because it is on the basis of the smallest actions, a word. Think how flippantly we use words, how casually we throw things out there. 
Not knowing that our words have power and impact. Not knowing that there is a God who doesn't allow one of our words to fall to the ground, but stores them up as condemnation against us in judgment. It's not just that verse. Matthew 5 says, Again, you've heard from me that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord all that you have sworn. Jesus says, but I say, don't even take an oath at all. Don't swear by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Let what you simply say be yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. What's he saying? Not to make a pledge, not to swear, not to say, I promise I will do something, or I swear I will do something. Not to, not to make such a commitment that you can't fulfill because it's better for you not to make a promise, not to make a vow, not to make a pledge, and then to not fulfill it, you won't be in sin. But if you make a promise, if you make a pledge, if you make a vow, you must fulfill it because God takes it seriously. James 5.12 But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I tell you the truth, that changed my my mentality. I read Proverbs 6, 1 through 5. I started to go through it. I said, Solomon, what's the big deal? And then I checked my own heart as I read through, what does it mean to God for us to make a vow or a pledge or to make a commitment. And so I had to, you see how, what I did? I had to adjust my life and thinking to the word, not adjust the word to my own thinking. This isn't a big deal is what I thought. But then I read through the scripture. Now I'm saying, okay, it is a big deal because it's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to him. So let me give us a general application for this first five verse section. A general application of this text, because I, I, probably not many of you in the room who have been asked this past month to, for, to co-sign a loan. I mean, just to be real honest, if I asked you to raise your hand, I, I would imagine maybe one or two in the past um, 10 years that this has become a relevant issue that you've searched the scriptures for. Should I co-sign? Should I not? My neighbor asked me to co-sign. It did happen to me not too long ago. A friend was defaulting on a car. Um, from, uh, it doesn't live around here, but he was defaulting on a car and he said, hey, would you co-sign on this car for me? And, and this became an issue for me, but that was years ago. Probably not something that applies to in biblical hermeneutics as we say, what's the principle of giving a pledge or co-signing something? Um, what's the root principle that Proverbs 6, 1 through 5 is saying? And then we lift that principle and we, we say, now how does that generally apply to us? So here's the general application. This is a call for you to be careful and purposeful in your financial commitments as well as your verbal commitments. Be careful before you promise something. Even as small as, hey, I'll say a prayer for you. Or, hey, I'll call you back. Or, personally challenging to me, I'll be there at 1.15. All right? Seriously, that's a hard thing. I say something, and I have to fulfill what I say, it's better not even to to say that thing. Be careful before you promise something. Don't commit financially or verbally without careful thought and prayer and counsel from others in increasingly significant matters. Because your resources 
You don't own them. You're a steward and God will call you to account for how you spend those things. Let's transition from stewarding your finances into now being a steward of your time for productivity. Look at verses 6 through 11. Solomon tells his son, uh, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. He's teaching his son about laziness. The sluggard is one of the primary characters in the book of Proverbs. You see Proverbs uh, from chapter 10 uh, all the way through chapter 26 regarding the sluggard. And there's actually quite a bit. So if you struggle with laziness and comfort as a heart idol, memorizing or meditating on these uh, Proverbs about uh, sluggishness or laziness would be beneficial to you. The bottom line is that the sluggard lies around, sleeps too much, and rests too much. We all need rest. We all need sleep. The heart of this passage is not, you should never sleep, right? The heart of this passage is not trying to make Solomon and his son feel bad for taking a nap, right? Um, the, the, The issue is laziness versus productivity. Laziness versus productivity, He appeals to nature. Look at nature. You find the perfect example of a hardworking, industrious, productive creature. And it's an ant. It doesn't have a a ruler or a chief or an officer. That just means it has initiative. It doesn't wait for someone to tell it what to do. Have you ever seen somebody standing around doing nothing? And then you walk over and you say, there's seven things that could be done. Do them. I'm talking particularly about employment and employment. I remember one time, uh, to my shame, I worked at a golf course, and a friend of mine, Jade, his dad was the foreman, uh, one of the managers at the golf course, and as a 15-year-old, I was a little on the lazy side, and um, I I didn't know that Danny was watching me. (laughs) And I'm supposed to be uh, picking weeds on greens, or watering greens, or doing just general green maintenance, and... And I went for one uh, green and I sat in my golf cart for 10 or 15 minutes. And then without ever getting out of my cart, I drove to the next green and sat for 10 or 15 minutes. And I'm, you know, this is before the days of, you know, a phone. I'm just sitting there listening to the radio in my Walkman or something. Then I drove to the next green. And by the time I had wasted a full hour, Danny, smoke pouring out of his ears, came up to me and confronted me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just going around checking the greens. And he said in very colorful uh, language that I can't repeat here, no, you weren't. (laughs) I've followed you for the past hour and I saw you from that time to blank time at the 10th green, from blank time to blank time at the 11th green. I saw you everywhere you went and you didn't do anything that you said. You are lazy and you're wasting my time. Don't let it happen again or you won't have a job here anymore. As a 14-year-old, that made an impression on me to work as though someone was watching, right? Doesn't that echo the command of Colossians 3 to whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men? I was lazy and I needed 
I needed someone like Danny to show me my laziness and my lack of character in this area. And Proverbs says this. Listen to some of these Proverbs on the sluggard. 10.26 Like vinegar to teeth and smoke to eyes. By the way, those are two very annoying things. Smoke in your eyes. Have you ever made a fire pit and everywhere you walk around the fire pit, the smoke gets all over you? Like vinegar to your teeth and smoke to your eyes, that's what the lazy person is like to the person who sent him. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. 15.19, the way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. 19.24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and cannot even bring it back to his mouth. 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn, and even though he seeks food at harvest, he has nothing. 21, verses 25 through 26, the sluggard and his desires kill him, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves and he craves, but the righteous person gives and does not hold back. Chapter 22, verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed if I go in the streets. 24, verses 30 through 34, I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man who lacks sense. Behold, it was overgrown. Its ground was covered with nettles and its stone was broken down. Stone wall was broken down. Then I saw this and I considered it. I looked at it and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and desire like an armed man. Chapter 26, verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the streets. Again, that's, that's another proverb. Verse 14 of chapter 26, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard turn on his bed over and over and over. 26, 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to even bring it back to his mouth. And then 26.16, this lazy person is said to be wiser in his own mind than seven people who can answer sensibly. The result of someone who's lazy is poverty and desire for more. They have not, but they want and crave more. So the negative application of this passage is don't be lazy and don't be unproductive with your life. All of us can see times in our schedule where we're lazy or where we waste time. I probably don't have to point out some of the obvious things uh, in which we indulge our time with um, uh, comfort and entertainment and the hours that we spend on our phones or devices. The negative application is don't be lazy and unproductive with your life, but examine your life and see where you're not being productive and when you're giving yourself to comforts and laziness and transform that into productivity, that's the positive application. The positive application is be productive. Contribute something positive to humanity, to society, to your church, to your neighborhood, to your family. Be productive and industrious enough that people are blessed by the work of your hands. 
I remember seeing Post Malone tattoo always tired under his eyelids where his bags of eyes should be. That's the example of an industrious, productive person who's always tired. The truth is you'll never get enough rest. The truth is if you're given to sleep, you will always want more sleep. And I'm not railing against you, uh, you know, not um, sleeping eight hours a night. I want you to be rested. I want you to be productive is the, is the hope. But the key theme here is to be a good steward of your time, to redeem your time. At the end of your life, you want to make sure that your life counts, that your life matters. No one wants to get to the end and say, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. So how do you make sure your life counts? How do you redeem the time? How do you make the most of the dash between the dates? I was going through this last night and walked over uh, to the kitchen dining room table there and asked what I was doing. And I said, I'm, I'm trying to find the right um, way to finish this sermon on redeeming the time. And she walked away. I was like, well, I guess she's not interested. Uh, she came back in and she said, we've been studying this this summer. And she handed me this book by Jaquel Crow, Jaquel Crow, an 18-year-old, by the way. I started reading this book, and I kept thinking, who is this that's writing? And then I flipped over to the back. I saw it's this 18-year-old girl. And I thought, this is incredible. This is really uh, magnificent writing. But it was good enough that I thought, this is exactly what I want to say. So let me just read a couple of paragraphs uh, from this book written by a teenager called This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms Your Teenage Years. Great book. If you're a parent of teenage, teenagers, I recommend it. She starts How the Gospel Redeems Your Time this way. She said, it seemed like William and Jonathan couldn't have been more different if they tried. William was an only child born and raised in affluent England. Jonathan was an all-American, a pastor's kid from Connecticut with eight siblings. As a teenager, William was a hardcore partier who did his best to ignore God. Jonathan, however, was a teenaged Jesus follower who preferred nature and solitude to socializing. William couldn't care less about academics. Jonathan, on the other hand, enrolled at Yale when he was 13. William, however, wasted all of his teen years. Jonathan did not. But William did not waste the rest of his life. During his 20s, God saved him and impressed him with two important thoughts that would bind him and Jonathan together. The first was this, life is short. And the second was time is important. Later, William lamented his lost teenage years. He resolved in his diary to endeavor from this moment forward to amend my plan for time. I hope to live more than heretofore to God's glory and my fellow creatures' goods. You probably figured it out by now that William's last name was Wilberforce. And he went on to spend the next 40 years of his life serving Christ and, his, and working to abolish slavery in England. No one would ever say that he wasted his life. But what about Jonathan? Jonathan, too, was obsessed with using time rightly. When he was only 19 years old, he started writing down resolutions about how to live his life most to the glory of God. 
Resolution number five, resolved. Never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolution number seven, resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it was the last hour of my life. You guessed it. Jonathan's last name was Edwards. He went on to preach a sermon that started America's Great Awakening and became one of the most famous preachers and writers that America has ever known. No one would have said that he wasted his life either. She continues, Christians talk about time a lot. We're told to redeem the time, to do hard things, and to not waste our lives. Most of us have heard it a hundred times and we're familiar with it to a fault. It's one of those concepts that every Jesus follower agrees on, but when it comes to daily practice, we're lost. How do you spend your time? I recently, a couple of months ago, put app limits on my phone. No more than an hour in a 24-hour period on any social media thing. No more than uh, an hour on any uh, game or entertainment type um, app on my phone. I installed a tracker on my phone that logs the hours that I use on any device synced between all my devices that shows a breakdown of my time. Under this conviction that I set as a New Year's Eve goal not to do worthless things. Just simply in my journal, this year I want to do less worthless things. Julie and I had an opportunity to visit friends in San Francisco. And he's a pastor, making uh, pastor money, right? Um, and when we went to his house, uh, I, it was just a paradise. I mean, every corner of his backyard was purposeful and manicured and detailed with a pool here and a gazebo there and a fire pit here and a relaxation corner here and a deck here and everything was put in place. And, and in my mind, I was tempted to think, I mean, you must have paid a lot of money for people to do this. And, and as we began to talk about the different spaces, um, they began to say, this is the result of 14 years of an afternoon here and an afternoon there and of a wheelbarrow for for one whole project, I remember digging out by back for um, an hour a day for seven weeks and transporting every piece of concrete and rock and stone and debris. And th- this was, they worked on their own yard and made it this paradise because they were committed to this idea that not a moment should be wasted. Why pay for something if we could uh, labor within our own home to make it a place that we enjoy? And they enjoyed every square inch of it. And it was such a conviction to me that on the airplane home, I got my iPad out and I made a note, things I learned from this guy, right? And it was just a conviction to me, a reinforcement, not to do worthless things. He redeems the time, not just in his own household, but he redeems the time in his ministry and in his time at work and in his time with his spouse, and in his time with his kids. So how do we redeem the time? Let me continue with a couple of points from our author, Jaquel Crow here. It's good enough for me to to read about. She says, how to redeem the time? How do I do that? I want to share the same passionate desire to use all of life for God's glory. How does the gospel inform and shape the way we use our time? 
When we look at Scripture, God doesn't leave us in the dark. Rather, we find practical principles to seek His kingdom and redeem the time. And if you're taking notes, there are four of them. Number one, we redeem the time by giving and doing and being our best. We redeem the time, number one, by giving and doing and being your best. She says, the Christian should be known as the best employee or employer in their workplace. It doesn't mean you're the most skilled or the most knowledgeable, but it does mean that you're the hardest worker. You're the one with the most integrity and the fiercest diligence. You're the one that throws yourself heart deep into doing the best you can because you don't do it just for a paycheck, but you do it ultimately for the glory of God. And she points out rightly that this is directly in connection with Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The second way that you redeem the time is you enjoy God's gifts. You wouldn't have thought that would be a way to redeem the time that God would allow you to have joy and pleasure. But we redeem the time by enjoying the good things that God gives us. She writes, there are so many wonderful things in this world. Art, the fall leaves, laughter, good conversations, root beer floats, flower gardens, summer barbecues, snowmen, sweatshirts, fairy tales, pie, and playgrounds. God has given his children heaps of good gifts for our pure and utter enjoyment. Don't miss out on them. When you grow distracted from taking pleasure in what God has given you, you are misusing your time. The third way to redeem the time is by sacrificing the idol of comfort. Sacrificing the idol of comfort. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book about idols and idolatry, identifies a root idol for most of us as that of comfort. And from the idol, the deep heart idol of comfort, come all sorts of recreation and hobbies and, and uh, pleasures that we try to enjoy, all sourced in this idol of comfort. And so her recommendation to us for redeeming the time is to sacrifice the idol of comfort. She says most of us live a relatively comfortable life. And once there's nothing wrong with that, God is the one who has placed you where you are, and you should rejoice in what he's given you. See the last point about enjoying what God has given you. But our comfort, like everything else that we have, our phones, our houses, our clothes, our bodies, our vehicles, our vacations, all of those things can become an idol. When we start elevating its status in our own lives, we find ourselves worshiping and building an altar to our own comfort. And the fourth way, she says, to redeem our time is to live in light of eternity. Live your life in light of eternity. In light of eternity, this life is just a drop in a ginormous bucket. Randy Alcorn says it like this, picture eternity as a line that stretches to infinity. This life is just a tiny dot at the beginning of that line. The smart person, he points out, doesn't live for the dot, he, di he lives for the line. In other words, everything we do, how we spend today and tomorrow and every day until we die should be lived with eternity in mind. Isn't that good? It's a good book. I recommend it uh, for what I've read um, and, uh, and it helps inform what we do with our time, how to redeem the time. I'll close with this. 
with this poem from C.T. Studd. He writes, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind it would not depart. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for me to make a better choice. Bidding me, selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its own way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, ere the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, now happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Father, we come to you this morning in light of a passage that would probably normally be skipped. Proverbs 6, 1 through 11. Thank you for the impression that it's made on me this week. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that it would have impacted those who are hearing my voice, that they may make the most of their life, understanding that their life is a stewardship. We don't make our own money. You are the source and you give us a stewardship. We don't own our own time. We are a steward, a manager of our time. So our closing prayer is rooted in Psalm 90, which says, teach us to number our days that we may give to you a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your pleasant, steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in you all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen that are evil. Let your work be shown to us, your servants, and let your glorious power be shown to us, your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us so that he may establish the work of our hands and that you may establish the work of our hands. So our Father, we ask that you would help us to evaluate and examine our resources, our time and our finances, our commitments and our words, 
and help us to be careful in the stewardship of what you give us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.